Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach Your Word, and in particular Your Word about the work and person of the Holy Spirit, we ask that You would guide our conversation, uh, lead us into all truth, help us to comprehend these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, So the subject is pneumatology, not to be confused with numerology. That's about numbers. This is about pneuma, P-N. It's, it's the Greek word for spirit. So the, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Alice. So what comes to your mind when you think about the Holy Spirit? What are some of the questions you have? And I'm going to let you answer out loud here for just a moment, but what are some of the questions you have? What expectations did you have coming this evening that you might hear about as we talk about the Holy Spirit? What, what are some of the things that come to your mind? Okay, how He speaks to you? Okay, it's good. Okay, what else? Okay, work and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Okay, what else comes to your mind? How the Holy Spirit transforms your life. It's, yeah. A vital part of his work. It's good. Um, okay, so we're going to look at a, a broad number of things. Um, and and here, here's what I hope to accomplish tonight. I mean, we could talk about this for three weeks straight, and I wouldn't cover everything. Um, but as we look at um, this topic tonight, there are four categories I have. One is the broad work of the Holy Spirit in creation and recreation. And this is an area that I think gets much neglected, but might be the most significant uh, subject matter that's given attention in Scripture about the Holy Spirit. So, although we talk about all these other things, this one we don't talk about much, but the Bible talks a lot about this one, so I want to I spend a little bit of time there. Uh, the specific work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Now, that's another area that the Bible spends a lot of time talking about, and that's the, what you alluded to, Tom, as well. Uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what it means biblically. Now, there's what it means popularly, and there's what it means biblically. So we're going to try to look at what does it mean biblically. Um, and that's, that gets a lot of playtime and, and conversation in certain circles. Uh, and it gets a fair amount, not so much in particular mention, but there's a lot that relates to it by way of connecting the, 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 what is said. Uh, and then, of course, the gifts or the empowering of the Holy Spirit, which you alluded to. And this gets touches into the area, Alice, that you talked about is, you know, how the Holy Spirit speaks to us. So there's there's some things there that we can look at. Uh, here are some things I will not cover tonight. Um, I'm not going to, to to cover the personhood or the deity of the Holy Spirit. Either of those two, I'm going to assume them. I'm assuming and we could teach on it and it's a good thing to teach on. I just don't have time to do all of this. So. I'm assuming that the Holy Spirit is not just a force, but He's a person in this discussion. We could prove that very easily scripturally. And I'm assuming that the Holy Spirit is God. So not only is He a person, but He's a person who happens to be God. So part of the Trinity. So um, uh, Peter did a great job this morning. And one of the things he talked about briefly was the Trinity. Um, so, so those are things uh, just by way of background. So let's start with the broad work of the Holy Spirit in creation and recreation, in creation and recreation. Um, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. 
We could probably all quote those verses. Most of us could quote those verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness covered the face of the deep. Now, I don't happen to know which translation I just quoted. I just know that that, boom, I can, you know. um, and, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. King James, face of the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So there in the first two verses of the Bible... We have the Holy Spirit mentioned. The Holy Spirit, in these verses, in the first chapter of Genesis and throughout God's work, it will be the primary agent of God's work. In other words, he's, he, he is the one who carries out the orders, so to speak, in regard to creation. Um, this particular Hebrew scholar named Susan Nittich said, the period of chaos in Genesis 1 is described by the rhyming terms tohu and bohu by the image of darkness um, on the face of the deep and by the presence of the Spirit of the Lord hovering over the face of the waters. And uh, Mary Vandenberg, who's another Hebrew scholar, happened to be one of my profs for a semester, said, made the following comment in some notes that uh, she had, which is this formless void talking about the tohu and bohu, the, the, the uh, chaos and the darkness, the formlessness and the emptiness, if you will, uh, is not conducive to life, human or other life. Only after God begins to order the chaos are living beings added to the picture. So how does God order the chaos? Well, he speaks, but how is it carried out? The, ho- the Holy Spirit is, is the source of life in creation. The Holy Spirit was hovering, as it were, awaiting God's command and then went to work. So the Holy Spirit is the source of life in creation. And interestingly, you'll note in that first chapter, how does the Holy Spirit bring about order? It's order through separation, separating this, separating that, you know, land from uh, uh, sea, light from darkness. It's, It's this process of constant separation so the holy spirit comes in and does this work and 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 creates life so the holy spirit is the womb in which all of life is birthed the holy spirit is the womb in which all of life is birthed just think about it as a picture that way that gives you some idea of just how robust the work of the holy spirit is the holy spirit's means of ordering everything into that which is good, uh, or is God's means. The Holy Spirit is God's means of ordering everything into that which is good. So it starts, Genesis 1, verse 2, chaos and darkness. We might say not good. Chapter ends, very good. The Holy Spirit is the agent that brings it from not good to very good uh, in creation. The, the Reformed tradition emphasizes the cosmic work of the Holy Spirit. Cosmic, of course, cosmos, the, the word for the earth, the world, the, the whole thing. But we would think in terms of universe. They, they didn't have the same conception of universe that we have. Ours is a much bigger conception because we of science and so forth. But it, it applies. The cosmic work of the Holy Spirit um, means that, that the Holy Spirit works in us, but He works in more than us. It's much bigger and broader. And so the Reformed tradition emphasizes that, that cosmic work. For instance, Calvin says, apart from the ongoing work of the Spirit over creation, 
we would go back to the darkness and chaos of Genesis 1-2. Think about that. Apart from the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in creation, everything would return to darkness and chaos. And that's true. That just kind of puts in perspective that He is actively at work in creation. Um, then um, uh, here's another quote. Like Calvin and Bavink, Abraham Kuyper had a cosmic view of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is not limited to Christian believers, but it spreads to all mankind, even to the atheist. No human life is imaginable apart from the Holy Spirit. He works in natural life in the giving of talents. Kuyper was not a universalist. He was simply saying that apart from the Spirit, life is not possible. Apart from the Spirit, life is not possible. Now, we, we tend to think uh, in, in, in kind of heirs of the Enlightenment, we, we somehow have constructed this idea that there's natural life as if there's something called life that can exist apart from God sustaining it. And then there's spiritual life as if, oh, that's what God's involved in. But as Christians, we don't, shouldn't really have that dichotomy that says it that way because there is no life apart from the Holy Spirit, period, for anyone or anything. Okay? And then there's the spiritual life, which is beyond that. It's, it's the re-enlivening of our li- hearts to, to God. So that, that, that aspect, yes, but not in contradistinction to other life. That All life comes from God. So I'm going to take a moment here, and maybe it belongs in another category, but it's very relevant to what we're talking about here, and talk about common grace versus saving grace, or you might say special grace. So common grace, um, saving grace. Common grace is grace which everyone, whether, by, whether they be wicked or righteous, receives from God. Okay? Common grace. Um, if, if a sinner goes to the doctor... The doctor provides medicine, you know, prescribes some medicine. It's all based on the way God created the world. Well, they receive common grace from God, right? Matthew 5 talks to us a little bit about common grace in verses 44 and 45. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So, so what does rain do? It brings forth life in creation. So the common grace of life is given to unbelievers just like it's given to believers. God doesn't distinguish between us when it comes to common grace. In light of the reality that apart from the Spirit of God all would be darkness and chaos, common grace is a work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's not the particular work of the Holy Spirit in salvation, but it is a work of the Holy Spirit. And so I, we, we should see the work of the Holy Spirit in creation. And that will help us understand the work of the Holy Spirit in recreation in a moment. But we have to see it in creation. So co- common grace is then the non-saving benefits of the Holy Spirit's work in the world. The non-saving benefits of the Holy Spirit's work in the world. So when you think Holy Spirit, think life. Okay, Holy Spirit, kind of have this equals life, and, and I don't mean that in the like equals in the sense of it's it, it, life is the Holy Spirit. That would not necessarily be true, but Holy Spirit brings life. All life came from the Holy Spirit. Okay, 
The Holy Spirit is the agent of creation and recreation. So now let's talk about recreation a little bit. Christ inaugurated new creation. The Spirit brings it to fulfillment. Christ inaugurated new creation through His death, burial, and resurrection. He's the beginning of the new creation. And the Holy Spirit brings it to fulfillment. Just, just as the Holy Spirit is the agency by which God brings about His work of creation, forming, ordering, making alive in Genesis 1, so too He is the agent of recreation. The agent of recreation. When you hear recreation, of course, you could pronounce that word another way. What would that be? Recreation. And what do we do? Why do we have recreation? It's to kind of revitalize ourselves, right? When a little recreation is good, right? So, so it, it, it's from the same idea. But recreation is the renewal of life. Um, Uh, just as the Holy Spirit was the agency by which God brought about His work of creation, this forming, ordering, making alive in Genesis 1, so too He is the agent of recreation. When you hear recreation, think regeneration, renewal, new birth. Those are all, you know, if we had that whiteboard up here, I could, if I drew a circle and said this is, recreation, if I drew a circle and said this is regeneration, and, and, and one that said this is renewal, I'm not sure if they'd all be the exact same circle, but certainly if, we, if, recre- if recreation was the biggest one, the other two would be within it. They're part of it. They, they, they would be speaking about similar concepts and terms. Um, John 3, for instance. You're probably familiar with these verses. Verses 6 through 8, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. By the way, I, I printed out all the verses just so you'd wouldn't have to, you know, search through your Bibles to find them, so you'd have them there. Um, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So there's new birth, born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So being born of the Spirit, being born again, the Spirit is the one who gives new birth. Titus, Paul's letter to Titus in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, we read, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. But then notice these words. He saved us through the washing of what? Rebirth. And what? Renewal. Rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out generously on us. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. You show, so this is Paul writing to the Corinthians. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. For the letter kills, but the Spirit does what? Gives life. The Spirit gives life. So here's this. Even in, not only in Genesis 1 does the Spirit give life, not only in, in, in all the other ways that the Spirit gives life, but in new birth, the Spirit gives life. So that's the special work of the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk more about how it transforms a believer, but the Spirit gives life. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 5 we read this, 
Now the one who has uh, fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now ultimately what is to come is called what? New creation. Right? New creation. So notice, he hasn't just jumped gears altogether when you get down later in the chapter in verse 17 when he says, now the one who has, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. So the way that reads in, 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 in Greek is, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. You have to kind of figure out how do those things relate to each other contextually. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's a deposit. If, if, if I'm going to buy your house from you and, and at closing you're going to get a total of 200000 for your house, but I give you a, a $10,000 deposit, well, at closing, what do I owe you? One hundred and ninety. Why? Because the 10000 is part and parcel of the whole thing. The Holy Spirit, He's ultimately bringing new creation. That's what He is at work doing, just like He was in Genesis 1 bringing creation. He's bringing new creation. So the Holy Spirit in us is a deposit. So the moment we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in us, new creation. That deposit is part of the whole. So the Spirit being in us is part of the whole. You think, man, I can't wait for new creation. Well, you've already got part of it. <laughs> you've already got part of it within you. And, and you are part of it. That, that's even more to think of it that way. You are part of that new creation now. And then note the word in verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to God. So you could add that to that list we set up above those circles of different words. Reconciliation. The reconciliation of all things, Ephesians talks about. Our reconciliation with God, it's personal and it's cosmic. All things, personal. You're a new creation, and yet there will be a completely new creation. You see, that's the cosmic work of the Holy Spirit. Christ's work of atonement allows for relationship with God. The Spirit softens hearts. Okay? So Christ provided for this relationship, but now the Spirit softens our hearts, turns stone to flesh. We'll look at some verses later that, that speak of that. To welcome that relationship. Then the Holy Spirit transforms us and enlivens us. So you, so you, so you have the work of Christ, you have the work of the Spirit. Bavink says it this way, the, the Holy Spirit, this is... Um, Herman Bovink, and, and I've got the, the Reform Dog from Reform Dogmatics, but he says, the, the Holy Spirit takes everything from Christ. As the Son came to glorify the Father, so the Holy Spirit in turn came down to glorify the Son. He applies all Christ's benefits to each in his measure at his time, according to his order, until the fullness of Christ dwells in his church and she has reached maturity. The measure of the full stature of Christ. And then listen to this last line here. The whole way of salvation is the applicatory grace of the Holy Spirit. The applicatory grace. In other words, Christ provides the grace. The Holy Spirit applies the grace. Christ provides the grace. The Holy Spirit applies the grace into 
our lives. Tracking with me so far? Okay. The Holy Spirit's work of recreation is also not limited just to humans, but it is cosmic. So it's also cosmic. The, the whole of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, is a work of the Spirit carrying out God's commands and Christ's provision just as the first creation was the Father, Son, and Spirit. The, the Trinity's involved in all of these, and the Spirit is that agent of, of that bringing life and, and renewal and regeneration, etc., um, in, in this. And we see a picture of this in the 104th Psalm. It's probably verses you're somewhat familiar with, or at least have heard, and you know they're not going to sound foreign to you. But think about what they're saying. It says, all creatures, so this is creation, all creatures look to you, and you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, They die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Isn't that interesting? Here you see recreation right in the middle of the 104th Psalm. And notice, I mean, if if I understand that correct in its context, and I think I do, the they that are created are the things that were already previously existent. But now they're being what? Recreated. They're being given new life. You know, it's true. I think Ryan last Sunday evening, he talked about how, you know, God created me. Well, that's true. But if we were to look at the whole scientific process, we'd say, well, mom and a dad came together and there's certainly a natural process, right? God took what was already existent, brought it together to create life. Here, the Holy Spirit is taking what is dead and corrupt, or, or, or corroding and, 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 and rotting away. He sends His Spirit, they're created, you renew the face of the ground. The recreation, and this is a, again a quote from Bavink, but I, I think you can see it here in Psalm 104. The recreation is not a second new creation. Follow, follow me here. In other words, it's like the first creation, when in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing, then there was something. Okay? The recreation is not there's nothing and then there's something. The recreation is the something that corroded, died, fell away, etc., etc., is now recreated into what is new. So the recreation is not a second new creation. It does not add to existence any new creatures or introduce any new substance into it, but it is truly reformation. Reformation. So think about it. If you are in Christ, and looking around the room, I, as best to my knowledge, everybody in the room is in Christ. Well, when you became in Christ, new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. But it's not as if you didn't exist before. So it's not new creation in the sense of, oh, this is so brand new that this wasn't here yesterday, but, oh, here's Caitlin, Wow. Caitlin, I mean, I've never met you before. You, no, but, but the same Caitlin existed before as part of the old creation, but now she's new creation. Of course, we're in the already not yet, so we also know that some of the old lingers, but that's not, not tonight's topic, right? But so, so you, it's not as if 
something that did not exist now exists. It's that there's this renewal, restoration, recreation of what was and was dying. Now, if that's true on the individual level, keep in mind it's a cosmic work. The same is true for heaven and earth. You know, a lot of times Christians, I've heard, sadly, say things or speak in, in a way, that, you know, something like, well, it doesn't really matter what happens to this earth. He's making a new one anyway. Well, actually, it does matter because he's making this one new. And so either we are working in consort with him or we are working against him. The Holy Spirit is working to bring life to this dead creation. And if we are working to bring death to it, we are working against him. Truth be told, Christians should be some of the, the most avid environmentalists, sound and logical ones and, and, and true ones, not, not rabid ones, but, but, but we should be the truest of all environmentalists. Because God has given, we, from, from Scripture, the very second chapter of the Bible, God gave humanity the task of taking care of the earth. To conserve, to serve with. It serves us, we serve it. This conserve um, creation. That's another discussion again. But it's relevant to this issue of recreation. The new earth is not going to be a new earth made from nothing, but a new earth which is a restoration and renewal of the old. Second major topic, the specific work of the Holy Spirit in a believer. The flesh... And Paul speaks about the flesh versus the spirit. The flesh versus the spirit, okay? The flesh is that life which has rejected the spirit of God as the source of life. It began with the rejection of God and his law in the Garden of Eden, right? The flesh then <laughs> comes into to the fray and with the flesh came death and, it, and he died and he died and so on and so forth. We, we, so when we read Romans 8, Keep in mind that the flesh is that life, that life which has rejected the Spirit of God as the source of life, that has rejected God and His ways as the source of life. So read with me uh, Romans 8, 6 through 13. The mind governed by the flesh is death. So that mind which is still working in rejection of God and in, in His Spirit. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Okay. So, so the mind governed by the flesh orients toward tohu and bohu, chaos and darkness, death, right? The mind governed by the spirit orients toward life and peace, and it was very good. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, speaking to the church, however, are not in the flesh, but are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. So the Spirit in us is continually working to recreate life in us, to bring new life, to renew, and to restore to life everything within us. Therefore, verse 12, 
brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So this recreation should begin to affect our very lives and um, <clears throat> what we do with our bodies. So, so this next thing here you'll have in your notes, this is, <laughs> be your own light, Buddha told his pupils. Be your own refuge. Do not take refuge in anything else. Hold on to the truth as to a lamp. Do not look for a refuge in anyone other than yourself. Now, I think Buddha provides us with a good example of a tension that exists in, in unbelievers. Unbelievers, I think, at, at large in other religions certainly recognize the necessity of being guided internally. You know, this sort of inward guide. Um, but they fail to see that we have turned away from the light and toward the darkness and chaos so that to pursue the internal light that we have is to pursue darkness and ultimately death. It's, it's a pursuit of death. So we recognize on the one hand we were designed, right, to be guided by this internal guidance system, so to speak. But we rejected that guidance system, God and His law. And the moment we did, we became hostile to God. And so we're in a downward spiral to crash into death. What is often called in, in, in the discussion of Reformed doctrines, total depravity. You know, in the tulip, that's the, the T, total depravity. I, I think it's better called total inability. And I think that helps us understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Total inability. In the flesh, we are totally unable to do God's will or to please Him. In the flesh, we are totally unable to do God's will or to please Him. Totally unable. By the Spirit, we are able to please God. We are able to do God's will. And, and by using that language, I think it helps us keep from creating a, a, a barrier that we never get past. You know, well, a lot of times we, we find that Christians seem to think that they're, they're so bad off that they never really can live in righteousness. But that's not the picture the New Testament paints. The New Testament seems to say that our lives should be being transformed. And, and so when I think, I think it, it's helpful to think of total inability. And of course, then you can easily see how the Spirit enables and transforms us and changes us. Um, the Holy Spirit is, uh, as some have called, the second Emmanuel. God with us, Emmanuel. He, it's the second Emmanuel. Of course, one could make some argument for third and for, you know, on and on and on. But in, in the big picture thing, second Emmanuel, God with us. Um, but not just... Uh, with us he's in us now so jesus was god with us but now the holy spirit is god not only with us but in us but never to be confused with us in other words we are not the holy spirit so he is in us and we are to be guided by the holy spirit but that does not mean we are to be guided by our own hearts you follow that our own hearts can get us off track the holy spirit is working to change our hearts we should we need to follow the holy spirit and when we follow the holy spirit and the truth that he enlivens to our hearts from god's word we are indeed following and being directed by the spirit and this of course means that we are never alone or by ourselves in all that we are called to do 
Never by ourselves. Never alone. How does the Holy Spirit work to renew the thinking and actions of the believer? How does the Holy Spirit work to renew the thinking and the actions of the believer? Um, I'll rely on another quote uh, here by Bavink. Uh, At the same time, the the work of the Holy Spirit does not override human willing and acting. In other words, He didn't just come in and override human willing and acting. Grace opposes not our nature, but our sin. Now think about that. In other words, you know, if, if, if you have certain personality things and, and ways that you are, the Holy Spirit doesn't come over and just kind of take over and you become a roboton. You know, you're just animated by the Holy Spirit. That, that's not how it works. When the Holy Spirit even inspired the writers of Scripture, Paul or Luke, their personalities show through. He didn't just dictate through them like some sort of machine. We learned that, you know, earlier on in, 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 the, the, in our systematics a little bit about that. But here... Likewise, in our own lives, the the Holy Spirit doesn't take over and start living through us in the sense that we are no longer in control. Our personalities, our natures remain intact, but He opposes our sin. The application of salvation is and remains a work of of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, and is therefore never coercive and violent, but always spiritual. Treating humans not as blocks of wood, but as rational beings, illuminating, persuading, drawing, and bending. (laughs) We better not leave out bending. (laughs) Sometimes we need to be bent. (laughs) And bending them. You know, think of that that lump of clay, right? (laughs) mm, But it's, 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 it's a working in. The Spirit causes the darkness of human sin to yield to the light of God's grace and replaces spiritual powerlessness, total inability, spiritual powerlessness, with spiritual power, ability. And we see this really expressed well in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, which reads, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according uh, for His good pleasure. Both to will and to do for His good pleasure. So, think about that. You work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you. Well, which person of the Trinity is God working in us? The Holy Spirit, right? To will and to do according to His good pleasure or for His good pleasure. There's that making God happy thing again. And, 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 and if you think about it, according to Ephesians 2.10, God created us for the very purpose of doing good works. Okay, you've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Um, but when we, when we picture that, I've created to do good works, we should envision the Spirit of God in us bringing about the desire and ability to do those good works. It's, it's like in Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God's hovering over the waters to carry out all of God's commands regarding life. Well, God created us to do good works and the Spirit of God's hovering in our lives to carry out all that God cr- created us to do in, in, in working through us. And, and, and again, my friend, Mr. Bobink, uh, in regeneration, the Holy Spirit does not merely, by the word, illumine the intellect, but also directly and immediately infuses new affections into the will. Faith and repentance are the fruits 
of an omnipotent, all-powerful operation of the Holy Spirit. The fruits of a seed planted in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Uh, You could just spend about 20 or 30 minutes, we could just sit here and talk about that quote alone. I'd encourage you just to contemplate and consider what all that that means. But the Holy Spirit does not merely... Uh, by the word, illumine the intellect, though he does, and that's a vital work of the Spirit, but also directly and immediately infuses new affections into the will. Faith and repentance are the fruits of the all-powerful operation of the Holy Spirit. Okay, third, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what it means. Um, I'll just see how far we get. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this quickly. This material is covered... Uh, in our foundations class to a large degree, I'm just going to highlight some key things and, and then, you know, communicate a point because there's a lot of com- confusion regarding what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, largely because it was a topic so neglected. It was neglected for many decades, maybe centuries in, in church history in terms of teaching on it. And because of the neglect, when people began to try to understand Scripture in light of their experience. So kind of working from, here's my experience, what does the Scripture say about that? that you can find some things that way, but it, it may also lead you astray in what the Scripture meant because you're, you're, in, in, you're importing to the text an experience, okay? So instead, what I want to try to do is draw from the text um, what is being talked about in this regard. So each of the four Gospels records uh, record these significant uh, words of John the Baptist. It is records. Each records. These significant words of John the Baptist. Matthew 3.11. And, and they may slightly word it differently, but they all say the, the, the key point here. But it says, I baptize you with water, John the Baptist speaking, for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, speaking of Jesus, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. And here's the, the line that you find in all four of the Gospels. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and this one, and, and with fire. But this idea that Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit and that that is a work that he will do is significant enough. It's one of those few things that finds its way into all four of the Gospels. Of course, the crucifixion would be another one, right? Resurrection. These are important things. Um, and anything that, that, that does, uh, you've got to recognize it had significant uh, impact on the early church. It it may not be too strong to say that apart from the work of the cross, the most significant work Jesus does is to baptize in the Holy Spirit. So it is important for us to know what it means that he baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Um, The waters of baptism, I think, are a picture. They bring us back to the very second verse of the Bible, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. You know, you have that picture of Jesus being baptized, right? And what happened? The Spirit of God descended in the form of a dove. So what are doves? They hover. (laughs) You picture of Noah letting out these doves to go and they had to hover over the water and return. And and, and so you have this picture of the Spirit hovering over the water. And the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is this picture of recreation. We go back into the water. We're being buried with Christ. What is that? Return to Tohu Abode. Darkness, chaos, death. We come back out. There's recreation being symbolized in our baptism. Recreation. Pictured there. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is this 
work of the Holy Spirit internally to create that new creation. But let's look a little bit more at what the Bible says about it. The promised Holy Spirit. John the, the, the Baptist pointed forward to when Jesus was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as, quote, what the fa- Father promised or, quote, the gift my Father promised. So you see that in Luke 24. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So he promised something that would clothe you with power from on high. So it's not the power of the flesh. It's the power of the Spirit. It's that which will give ability where we have inability. Acts 1, 4, and 5. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard of me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, well, you know, this, it may seem obvious, but it was not apparently obvious to me for many years, decades of my Christian life. But approximately uh, 17 years ago, give or take, I'm reading that, I'm studying it, I'm preparing to teach on it, and it dawns on me that we should probably ask the question, when and where did the Father promise it? Again, that that should be obvious. I'm sure that I was just a little late in coming to the party, okay? But it just seemed obvious. Oh, maybe, maybe we should ask where was this promise, because if we understand where the promise is, maybe it'll help us understand what the fulfillment is. You know, like what Peter was talking about this morning, yeah. You, you can't just ditch the old, right? I mean, yeah. it may be true that in some sense the old is asking the questions and the new is providing the answers, but you know, an answer key without the questions isn't overly instructive. <laughs> so you, 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 you kind of want to know what the, what the questions are. And so here, what was the promise that is being fulfilled? Um, and Jesus connects the baptism with the Holy Spirit together with the promise of the Father. So what, so what is this promise? Well, we could run through a lot of Old Testament texts, but it's a promise made throughout the Old Testament. We could start all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy at least, possibly sooner, but at least we have it in the book of Deuteronomy. But I'm going to start in Ezekiel 36, just to kind of stay to the time frame we have. I will give you, this uh, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Of course, that sounds like the language being echoed we read a minute ago in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, verse 13 in particular, at work in you to will and to do. That's where it comes from. So this promise that one day God would put the spirit in us and move us. Now, we... We saw in our study in Thessalonians a couple Sundays ago, I think it was last Sunday, that the Thessalonians, Paul speaks to them, and he changes it from God will do this to God has put his spirit in you. So he sees the church as the fulfillment of this. In Joel, and the reason I read this one in Joel is because on the day of Pentecost, when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit for the very first time, Peter quotes this verse in explanation of what took place and so it's relevant to what promise we're speaking about and joel writes and afterward i will pour out my spirit on all people your sons and daughters will prophesy your old men will dream dreams your young men will see visions even on my servants both men and women i will pour out my spirit in those days but again joel wasn't speaking in a vacuum 
Joel was to be understood as referring to what Ezekiel had talked about, what Jeremiah, you know, all these other prophets had talked about, the ones that had come before him. And it depends on where you put him into the history of the prophets. Some put him early, some put him way back at the end with Malachi. I lean more toward that, but arguments go both ways. But whatever prophets had come before him, he was speaking in, in concert with them. And the ones that came after were speaking in concert with him. So if Ezekiel came after Joel in in actual sequence, then Ezekiel's expanding on what Joel was talking about, or vice versa. Jeremiah 31 and 31 and following, it says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. That's speaking about the Mosaic covenant that was formed, you know, made at Sinai. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So you have this language here of putting his law in their minds, writing it on their hearts. Making a new covenant. But then remember a verse we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says, you are a letter written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And then he says, therefore, we are ministers of a new covenant. You see the connection between what Paul said and these verses right here in Jeremiah 31? It's language he's taken right from Jeremiah 31. In other words, we're ministers of a new covenant because God promised a new covenant and the new covenant He's going to write us all on your hearts. But what does he attribute it to? It's the spirit of the living God. See, he, he's drawing Ezekiel, Joel, and Jeremiah together and Deuteronomy and so forth and saying that this promised Holy Spirit has come and therefore we're ministers of a new covenant. So the promise of the Father, think of all the things that we now see are connected to the promise of the Father. The coming of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. The promise that He would transform us from within and write... His law on our hearts and the new covenant. All of these things are like equal signs between them with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is it some kind of obscure sort of secondary thing that it's optional to the Christian life? I would say in light of what we see in Scripture, it's the new covenant. It's the whole, the encompassing, it's it's everything involved, and I think we'll see that as, as we continue through. Um, the day of Pentecost. That's when, you know, wait for the promise of the Father. You know, He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, wait for the promise of the Father. You'll receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, empowering from on high, all this. So the day comes when they waited for, and, and, and it comes. Let's look at that day. In order to understand what, it's communicating, we have to understand what Pentecost was. You know, we think of Pentecost, well, that's when the Holy Spirit came. Yes, but they thought of Pentecost then as something else. It hadn't come yet. <laughs> they gathered together on the day of Pentecost for a reason other than celebrating that the Holy Spirit had come at one point because he hadn't yet come. So what was the reason they were gathering together? You, you follow my question? In other words, it had a meaning to them that we often don't think about, but it's important to understanding what it is. And, and for them, from about the second century before Christ in Jewish life, um, 
Pentecost was the celebration of God giving them the Mosaic law at, the, at Sinai. About 50 days after they got out of Egypt, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. God gave them the law. They continued to break it. And every Pentecost, they would recommit themselves to obeying God's law. Thank you, God, for giving us this law. <laughs> we failed. We're going to try harder. I mean, I, I'm being a little bit, you know, caricaturizing it, if you will. But just to kind of give you the simple idea of what's going on. So the disciples, as were many at that festival, gathered to recommit themselves to God's covenant made with them at Sinai. They're praying. They, they were gathering together at the temple every day up until then. And so they're, they're praying where they gathered. You know, they're, remind, they're going over the words of Exodus 19 where the Lord says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then in Acts 2, we read, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they're all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So on this day of Pentecost, rather than just renewing the covenant that was made at Sinai, they're receiving the new covenant by the Holy Spirit being placed within them. Rather than trying harder, they're now given an entirely new ability. The empowering work of the Holy Spirit to cause them to will and to do God's uh, work and, 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 and will. And divided tongues of fire had appeared and rested on each one of them. The first time the covenant came, God came down and with fire he wrote the law on tablets of stone. His finger of fire, so to speak. You know, and there's fire comes down on the mountain, smoke and, and all this. But on this day of Pentecost, it comes down and what? It divides. Not writing it on tablets of stone. What's the picture? Writing on each of their hearts. Filling each one of them. Okay. It's the fulfillment of all those promises. God promised a new covenant. The new covenant is now going to be written in their hearts. This, the, the law of God in their hearts under the new covenant. It's the promise of the Father. So it's the Spirit now dwelling within His people to conform them to the very image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the promise of the Father, said another way. When Paul says we're not under law but under grace, and then he restates it as we do not serve in the, or we do uh, uh, serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. There's a typo there, but we do serve in the, in, in, in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. In other words, we, we don't serve in, in, in this old way of here's the law externally. We serve in a new way. Here's God's law written in your heart. And so when Paul says you're not under the law, you're under the Spirit, he's not saying the law no longer matters. God laws, God's law does matter. But you're not under that jurisdiction where you have all this external pressure and you've got to fall under the, the Mosaic covenant that came at Sinai. No, you're under God's law and it's now written in your heart by the Spirit of God within you. It doesn't mean, yeah, all rules are thrown away. It doesn't matter anymore. That's not what it means to be not under the law, but under 
the Spirit. And then finally, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about entrance into Christ's body. And we, and we see that we see that uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, for we were all baptized by or with or in one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We were all given the one Spirit to drink. So, we were baptized in one Spirit. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Into one body and given one Spirit to drink. So, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is where we all, there aren't some who have it and some who don't, all, operative word all, baptized into one body, not a body that's got some that are and some that aren't, but no, not two bodies, one body. By one Spirit. So all who are members of the body of Christ have been baptized with the Holy Spirit or else how did they get there? It's the only way to get there. Okay? And then we don't have time to go into this next section, but you've got notes. Um, Gifts or empowering of the Holy Spirit is is what the next thing is. And um, let me see if there's just a couple of things I want to highlight. Yeah, so much of it. Okay, we'll go through this quickly. So, when one recognizes that the baptism of the Spirit, and by the way, if you need to leave, please feel free to, I understand. When one recognizes that the baptism of the Spirit, which day of Pentecost and in other places resulted in speaking in tongues, prophecy, great joy, preaching, evangelism, service, and more. We could add to that list. When we recognize that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a theological equivalent to the new covenant, it clears some things up, I think. I may muddy some things too, but, but it certainly clears some things up. The, the gifts of the Spirit are not an optional extra for the Christian life. It's not as if, well, I'm not really interested in the gifts of the Spirit. I'm sorry, it kind of comes with the package. <laughs> so you're like, you know, it's part of the deal. Um, Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12, I hope we, at some point I want to do a series in 1 Corinthians, either on Sunday night or Sunday morning again or something. But Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 12 is that there is no division in the body. We all have the same Spirit and we all have gifts Differing according to God's will. So all of us have spiritual gifts. Just part of the package. No way to be in the body of Christ and not have it. The gifts of the Spirit are every bit as much for today as they've ever been, even if some of the offices have been permanently filled. And I'll give you a case in point and just give you my perspective. Um, If somebody asked me, is is the gift of apostle or is the office of apostle Uh, still uh, a current office in the church today? My answer is absolutely yes. And it's filled by Peter and Paul and James and a number of other candidates who are very much alive, in case you're wondering. (laughs) Very much alive. So so yes, it's for today, but it's a unique office in that it was the foundational office, okay? So, you know, that's important to see because it is going to stay in place until 
the return of Christ for sure, at least, right? The perfecting of the body of Christ. So it will stay in place. Uh, and no time to go into that. We could talk about that for a while, but we won't right now. Um, it was never the case. Let me be careful to articulate this. It, it was never the case that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit meant daily miracles or that everyone was always healed. I mean, you can even see in Paul writing that he left somebody sick, right? Epaphras sick, I think it was, and so so, and then he almost died. But yet we know Paul often, you know, did extraordinary miracles of healing and, and so forth. So the gifts of the Spirit never were at our beck and call to use as we will, and when we will. They were always God divinely operating and. And, and, and the human person was just the delivery system of God's choice um, in, in that situation. And the same is true today. Nobody can go around doing miracles at will. We, we'd all go empty the children's hospital. That'd be like our first stop on the way home tonight, right? That just doesn't happen. Okay? Never has. And the closest we would have had to that is Jesus. But even Jesus went to that place where the man was laying by the pool, goes to him, heals him, and, and leaves. And if everybody else is, you know... Laying around. So you, you've got to recognize there's something of God's choosing involved in that and doing that, that's beyond our comprehension. The fruit of the Spirit's work is always love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And thanks to Nora, I'll never leave faithfulness out again. <laughs> I was quoting them to her one day just real quickly, and she said, you missed one. I said, I did? Yes, Faithfulness. Uh, well there you go Um, so the the goal of the spirit uh, of the gifts of the spirit the gifts that he distributes is therefore love and we see that in 1 Corinthians 14 and the other fruit we could add to that list everything in the list of the fruit of the spirit really I mean it's it's all of the above and those fruit, the, the fruit of the Spirit has certainly not passed away. And to whatever degree we need the gifts to, of the Spirit to bear the fruit of the Spirit, then we need the gifts. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a necessary part of how God works. It's part and parcel of the whole. The, the need is far greater than we're likely inclined to think, by the way. I think the need is much greater than we think it is for the gifts of the Spirit. But again, the gifts of the Spirit are varied. And that's the driving point of 1 Corinthians 12 varied and they are not often the things that we think they are we associate them with things that are really unusual but paul keeps emphasizing the fact that that they're all these things are gifts of the spirit on on both ends of that spectrum of usual and unusual as we might think john polkinghorn wrote the following i just i like the way he said this the gifts bestowed by the spirit are diverse distributed in different ways to different believers for different purposes, but they yield also the single fruit of a Christ-like life. Gordon Fee, for Paul, Christian life not only begins by means of the Spirit, the whole of Christian life is a matter of Spirit. One must finish the same way as one began, through the empowering and appropriating work of the Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit... We read earlier he's spoken of as the deposit of what is to come. So that's a part and parcel of the whole. But Hebrews 6 speaks of the Holy Spirit as, you know, it speaks of those who have been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. I would argue that there's a 
these aren't all distinctly different things. There's a lot of overlap here. And, and that the heavenly gift, the sharing in the Holy Spirit, the tasting of the powers of the coming age are essentially one thing. Virtually one thing. And, and, and so, in the age to come, everything's new creation. That power has transformed everything. Now we get the powers of that age in a taste. You know, hey, here's a sample of the meal you're about to get. But, but it's part and parcel of that. And so the gifts of the Spirit are a part and parcel. So sometimes, yes, sometimes the gifts of the Holy Spirit include healing. You pray for somebody who's sick, and God gives a gift, and they're healed. And you're thinking, man, it didn't feel any different when I prayed for the last guy. He didn't get nothing, but, but they're healed. And, 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 and it's this power of the coming age where well, they're going to be completely restored in that age, and they get this healing now. It's the same power. It's that deposit of the earlier, and sometimes that deposit includes supernatural things that remind us of that coming age. But all the gifts are supernatural, even the serving, even the teaching, even the instructing, even the gospel preaching. All the things that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 12 are part of that. And by the way, word of wisdom in that list of spiritual gifts. There are a lot of definitions given for that. I say the most likely one is what Paul gives earlier in the same letter when he speaks of the word of wisdom which he preached, which is the wisdom of the cross. The gospel is the preaching of the gospel. It's not some sort of insight into somebody's life. I'm not saying God never does it. I'm just saying that's not what the word of wisdom I don't think is because Paul defines it earlier in the letter. And it seems to be quite clear he's talking about the preaching of the gospel. And that's a gift of the Spirit that are given to some, not all, in that kind of way. Um, Another conversation. Um, Spiritual gifts are for the purpose of empowering new creation life in the midst of the old creation. Spiritual gifts are for the purpose of empowering new creation life in the midst while we still live in the old creation. We're in the already not yet. We already have new creation by the Holy Spirit within us. But we live in the old creation where it is not yet. And so spiritual gifts empower new creation life. Even our service in the kingdom of God. All that we do in the kingdom of God. All the gifts, the usual and the unusual, are evidence of new creation life, heavenly life, in the midst of old creation. Alice coming down here and preparing coffee on Sunday mornings and serving and and taking care of things. That's evidence of new creation in the midst of old. How do we know? Well, Ask Alice about what she did before Christ, right? I mean, you, you kind of know. I mean, wow, this is transformation, right? And so uh, we, we see this. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah, yeah. Um, spiritual gifts are always about the age to come and the fact that it has come already, but not yet. To say that the Spirit inspires speech to edify one another, and He does does not mean that the Spirit is still inspiring people to write Scripture or to give that kind of authoritative exhortation. I mean, and even, we don't have time for this tonight, but even in the New Testament, the gift of prophecy in the church did not mean that people were speaking with the authority of Scripture. It did not mean that then. It does not mean that now. There was a distinction then, and we need to be clear on that distinction now. We must judge all prophecy. We must desire earnestly spiritual gifts. 
Prayer is the Spirit. It, it, prayer is done in the Spirit and therefore becomes an indirect agency of renewal. Prayer is done in the Spirit and becomes an indirect agency of renewal. Pray at all times in the Spirit. We read in Ephesians 6. Um, of course, you read in Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit helps us with our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with world, uh, wordless groans. Um, and whoever searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Um, yeah, so we'll stop there. I, I want to close with this one verse from Revelation twenty two seventeen. We started at the beginning of the Bible. Now we start at the end. We'll go to the end of the Bible. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. Uh, so, so here we have the spirit and the bride. Who's the bride? It's the church, right? We say come. So the spirit bids people to come for what? For waters of life. The spirit brings life. It's recreation. The spirit bids people to come. The church bids people to come. So when we bid people to come, we're doing the same bidding that the Holy Spirit is bidding them to come. Because he's going to give them life. And so, all who are thirsty, come and, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. That's what the Spirit offers, and that's what we offer by the agency and work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Well, I'll take any questions, and if I can answer them briefly, I will. And if not, we'll talk another time on them. Thoughts? I have a question. Mm-hmm. The Spirit came to the apostles at Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to, to all hundred and you know twenty or so believers that were, were gathered. Okay. So my question to you is when does the Holy Spirit come to us as an individual? Right. It's a great question. So when does the Holy Spirit come to us as an individual? The Holy Spirit comes to us when we um when we come into Christ. In other words, at that moment of salvation, when we're brought into God's new covenant, the Holy Spirit now fills in us. Because Paul says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, then you do not belong to Him. So, the two come together. The moment you belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. Thinking in light of Romans 8, uh, what we read earlier. I think experientially, a lot of people who were in churches, they never talked about the Holy Spirit, they never thought about spiritual gifts, they never talked about any of this. And what happens is, somebody comes along and starts teaching about the Holy Spirit, and they say, well, how do I get it? And then somebody says, well, you've got to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, they didn't really understand as they already were in a biblical sense. But they prayed for them, and all of a sudden they're enlivened, both through instruction and a work of the Spirit to, to begin to think about spiritual things. And then they associate that with the biblical terminology of baptism of the Holy Spirit. Just, a, I, I think, a false association. We interpret the Scripture according to our experience. God never intended for the church to ignore the Holy Spirit for centuries and then suddenly start talking about Him. So, th- does that make some sense? Yeah, that's right. You're going to talk about some of these things, right?
looking at it with this is that just falls in the line of that's one of many. Yes. Yeah, that's one of many. And even in the even in the book of Acts, it's one of many. You you see other things that are evidence of the Holy Spirit. Um, there are particular evidences that occur at so every when the gospel came to the Jews, Pentecost, and the gospel came to the Samaritans, Acts eight, and then the gospels opened up to Gentiles, Acts ten. In 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 those encounters, um all within what would have been historic Israelite boundaries, you have similar, not exact, but similar kinds of evidences to demonstrate, not that every individual forever has to have those experiences to have the Holy Spirit, but to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is for all people groups. And so he didn't give one one thing and one another. In other words, all these people groups got those manifestations, not necessarily every individual within them. And then when you get to Ephesus, which is the first people group of Gentiles outside of the promised land or historic boundaries, you see a similar experience in, in it's, I think it's Acts 19. And, and, and so, and in, in the first three where all people groups were opened up, you also have Peter at each one of those events who was given the keys of the kingdom. Um, so there's a relationship between those events and that aspect of Peter's ministry opening up the gospel to every people group. That's a whole nother discussion to get, get into. Show me the verse that says with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Okay. Let's look at that verse. Well, yeah, I, I think it's often misunderstood, yes. Um, but Acts 2.38, um, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Is that the verse you're referencing? I think if you look back at verse 33, so exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And certainly what they saw and heard was tongues of fire, right? They heard people speaking the, the marvelous works of God in their own languages. Um, and then he, he goes on to describe, you know, people heard this, they're cut to the heart, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the promise is for you, your children, and all who are far off, all who, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So, so interestingly, note that where normally, you know, 
Jesus says, repent and be baptized. And Mark's, even the ending of Mark, which I don't think was original Scripture, but you have this sort of, all who are baptized will be saved. Those who do not believe will not be, or all who believe and are baptized will be saved and those who do not believe will not be. So there's this kind of believe, you could say believe, repent, be baptized, salvation. But here it's believe, you know, repent and be baptized. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I think that that's the same thing as saying you'll re- be saved. Right. Not for me. I mean, I was three years old and accepted Jesus as my personal Savior and was immediately baptized, if you want to call it that. It's probably right. the use of the word. But with that came a speaking of tongues and a prayer. Right. A three-year-old. Nobody had penetration or sit in the office now. So, you know what I'm saying? Right. Right. To this day. So I just sit there and I'm trying to understand. I mean, if you look back, like the women's center, mm-hmm. remember mm-hmm. that many years ago? <laughs> okay, so 22 years, 23 years ago. And one of the things I loved there was that it was so very orderly, but you saw quite often gifts of the Spirit manifested in, in very orderly moms dancing. So let me go back and finish answering Rachel's, and then we'll come to this. So, but you know they, they're somewhat together. But the the, quite, the language of evidence of speaking in tongues, I think, is extra biblical, meaning it's something we've kind of overlaid over the scripture. But we we've said it so much that as if it were in there that we read it and we we see it there, even though it's not what it says. Does that make sense? A lot of verses like that because we've been it's been drilled into us so much. Uh, now it is accurate to say that there were times we read big, big the big events in. Uh, Acts 2 uh, and Acts 10, where the evidence, certainly there was the evidence of speaking in tongues. And in Acts 10 in particular, you have Paul, or or, I'm sorry, uh, Peter saying that, hey, if God poured out a spirit and they're doing the same thing we were doing at Pentecost, then who are we to deny, right? Um, 
But keeping in mind, that's a cataclysmic event. First time in the history of ever that Gentiles are welcomed into the family of God without becoming Jews. And, and it took an entire church convention to figure out what was going on. Um, I think there should always be evidence that the Spirit of God has dwelled, become, come to dwell in us. If there's no evidence, one has to wonder if anything happened. I reference Acts 8. Um, some kind of evidence, but that evidence might be the fruit of love and joy and peace. There'd be a lot of ways that it might be evidence, but I think it should always have evidence. I think, back to, Laura to your kind of overarching concern, uh, I think there's a neglect of spiritual things by people at large. But I also think that we have to be keenly aware that God works in history in, in different ways at different times. What he does for a season isn't what he does all the time. Uh, and even as we read the book of Acts, he worked differently at different times, even through the course of the book of Acts. Um, so there's, there's a, we'll always live in a bit of a tension for, well, what God did at that time and thinking we need to have. Well, we can't manipulate anything to happen per se, but we can neglect to be prayerful. And so it's living in that space of knowing that God gives gifts differently according to his will at different times for different purposes and, and reasons. And, and sometimes we might be at fault in our neglect of aspects of spiritual life. And other times, it just might be, this is what it is. It's kind of like, God may heal somebody from a disease and they don't die. And the flip side is, this other person dies and they're 45 and you wonder, but why did he let that happen? Well, it wasn't that this one had more faith in that one. We know better than that. Um, does that make some sense? Trusting in his providence and sovereignty. But not, not doing nothing because of that, but praying and seeking and desiring and yeah. not being paralyzed by the sovereignty of God either, which you can go one way or the other with that. Yes. Yeah, I think I think Ephesians five eighteen speaks to this. Do not get drunk with on wine, which is, leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, it's passive. You be filled. Somebody else is doing the filling, but just in the way he says it, it it seems as if he's saying there's some something you do. <laughs> you know, you're putting yourself in that position, and 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 so uh, I think we do 
um, need to expect the Holy Spirit and wait on the Holy Spirit and you know, wait on God to work in our lives and pray and ask and, and seek and you will find and, and so forth. And I think uh, when we don't do those things, I think we bear the fruit of that. So, Okay, that's it. We're done.